Brothers and sisters, our sermon text for this evening comes from Psalm 53, so I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 53 in your chapter, in your uh, copy of the scriptures, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of Psalm 53. To the choir master, according to the Mahalath, a maskal of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror where there is no terror, for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah. I'll remind you that it is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love for our good. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for this time of worship to pray to you, to sing psalms to you, to pray for one another. Consider your word and what you would have for us tonight. Lord, we pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened as we read your word. Or by your power, would you help us to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge, that we may be filled to all the fullness of God? Or would you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer? Amen. Well, it is a true uh, joy to be with you all this evening. It's been, uh, by my count, about 18 months since I last got to join you on a, on a Lord's Day worship service. So it's great to be back. And uh, since that time, my wife has given birth to our third son, Titus. Uh, so he's now nine months old. So she's home with, with the littles. Um, she wishes she could be here. Last time she came along to worship and, and we left out those doors in a torrential downpour um, was my memory of, of walking out those doors last time. But it, it really, a joy, really is a joy to be welcomed here and to, to get to preach to you God's word. Um, you know, I, I've been attending a Reformed church in some regard for about the last six years. And I can remember making that shift from a, a non-denominational church that I was a part of into the Reformed world. And I found that many of the songs that we sung were familiar and yet somewhat different. The, you, you would sing a hymn and, and, you know, the lyrics might be just a little bit different. I'm still not sure what the correct lyrics of Come Thou Found of Every Blessing are. You know, there's a few lyric changes here and there that I can't quite seem to get right. It, it's familiar, but it's different. And in some ways, that's the feeling we get as we approach Psalm 53. If, if you're familiar with the Psalter, if you've read through the Psalms or heard them preached regularly, you, you might be saying, this sounds very familiar to me. And it should, because Psalm 53 is nearly identical to Psalm 14. Almost word for word with a few differences here and there, and then there's one significant change that comes in verse 5. But other than that, these two psalms are identical. And yet the Holy Spirit, as he inspired David to write these psalms, 
inspired him to write almost the exact same words two times. And then you add on top of that that Paul quotes from these two Psalms in Romans chapter 3 and quotes a large section of it. So this should make us perk up and pay attention to what these words are. You know, if you're a parent and and you tell your child something once, it's important. And if you tell them three times, they really ought to listen up at that point. As uh, Pastor James Montgomery Boyce comments about these three sections of Scripture, he says that anything God says once demands our attention. Anything he says twice demands our most intent attention. How then if he says something three times, as he does in this case? This demands our keenest concentration, contemplation, assimilation, and even memorization. So although this psalm may be familiar, we ought to approach it as much as we can with fresh eyes ready to hear what the Lord has for us this evening. So as we walk through the text, I'm going to use two simple headings to guide us. First is radical depravity and then radical grace. You know, if you're familiar with Calvinism and Reformed theology, you likely read this text and instantly saw the connections to the doctrine of total depravity, or as it's also called, radical depravity. You're not wrong to make those connections. This chapter is one of the main proof texts in all of the Bible for the doctrine of total depravity. This doctrine that that tells us how sin has affected every area of our lives. How we are born enslaved to sin and naturally bent towards evil. This, This doctrine that speaks of our total inability to redeem ourselves or to do anything by our own efforts to merit God's favor. Psalm 53 is one of the primary texts in scripture to prove that doctrine. And yet, I want to encourage you this evening to don't view this text merely as a proof text for a doctrine. Yes, it'll, it'll have plenty to say about our sinful condition and our rebellion against God. We need to not lose sight of the fact that Psalm 53 is a prayer. It's not a systematic theology textbook. It's a prayer. And even more than that, it's a prayer that was meant to be sung by God's people to remind them of key truths about who we are, about how we've rebelled against God, and, and what needs to be done about our sinful condition. So please don't, don't see this as simply as a theological proof text, but see this psalm as the deep prayer that it is. And a deep prayer that, praise God, he has answered in the course of redemptive history. So let's consider our first heading, radical depravity. David writes in verse 1, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. So David begins this discourse on a generic person that he calls the fool. Now, this is a rather common description in the Bible's wisdom books, the books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and even many of the Psalms. The Bible regularly talks about the fool and compares them and contrasts them with the wise. You may see it as the wicked man and the blessed man or those who deny God and those who submit to his existence. And so here David is describing the fool as the one who says in his heart that there cannot be a God. Perhaps you know someone who would make a declaration like that. Perhaps you know someone who says without a hint of doubt that there cannot be a God, that there cannot be a God who created all things, who providentially guides all of human history as he sees fit, that there cannot be a God who requires anything from his creation. Perhaps you know someone like that, or perhaps you were like that. 
Or perhaps in your heart of hearts, that really is your current posture towards God. Perhaps even now sitting in this space on this Sunday evening, you would say, you really don't think there is a God. And if that's the case, I I would say I'm so thankful that you've gathered with us this evening. As you can probably guess from the whole chapter of Psalm 53, this sermon is going to talk a lot about sin. We're going to consider our, our natural inclination to rebel against God. And I'm sure it's not like that every Sunday evening when you gather here, but we should always aim to be as balanced as the Bible is balanced. And so when we come to passages that talk about sin and rebellion, we ought to talk about sin and rebellion. So I'd invite you all to listen closely, to think deeply about your own life and your own morality of all that you say and think and do, and consider what God's word says about your heart. David is talking about the fool, the one who says in his heart that there is no God. And the denial of God in their hearts leads this fool to deny God with their lives, right? Not just in their heart, but in their life as well. In the second part of verse 1, David writes, They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There's a tongue twister for you. Abominable iniquity. There's none who does good. So the, the, the posture of the fool's heart makes a difference in their actions. Their lives have become corrupt because of the posture their heart takes. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 12, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Psalm 53 might rephrase that, for out of the abundance of the heart, our whole lives speak. For the fool, their outward actions point to the inward reality of their hearts being cold and dead and distant to God. Now there's an interesting play on words in verse 1. As David is talking about the fool, he's using the Hebrew word Nabal. Now that, that word Nabal is not only a Hebrew word, it's also a Hebrew name. Specifically, it's the name of someone that we see David interact with earlier in his life in 1 Samuel chapter 25. In his younger years, David is out in the wilderness with several of his men, and they have need for food and for shelter. And nearby the place where they were, there was this couple named Nabal and Abigail. And so Nabal, though his name literally means fool, he's accumulated some measure of worldly success. He apparently has lots of sheep and goats at hand. He could easily help David and his men. But as the story goes, David sends some of his young men to meet Nabal and ask for food and supplies, but Nabal selfishly turns down David's request. Now, we don't have space and time to go into the full details of this story, but at the end of the story, David himself says that he was terribly offended by Nabal's actions. But Nabal's wife... Is contrasted with him. Abigail is presented not as foolish. You know, Nabal's name literally means fool. Could you imagine if you had to walk around every day and say, Hi, my name is Fool? How hard would that be? But Nabal's wife, Abigail, is presented as the exact opposite. Whereas he's foolish, she is wise. She shows great kindness towards David and his men. She not only provides David with what they need, but she also promises to do whatever she can to protect their lives. Now, the the sad ending of this story is that Nabal learned of his wife's kindness towards David. And rather than being thankful for how kind and gentle his wife is and and how she covered for his sin, 
he responds with intense anger towards his wife. He becomes so filled with anger and hatred in his heart that God actually strikes him dead with a heart attack. Nabal is such a sad picture of what it means to be the fool. He was so opposed to God that he couldn't even spare some extra bread and wine for David and his men. He was living the life of a fool. And this is the sad reality of those who live their lives with their hearts turned away from God and opposed to him. That their entire lives oppose what God commands. They fail to obey him and submit to him in any way. Now clearly Nabal had some level of skill in business. He would have never become as wealthy as he was without that sort of skill. But despite that earthly success, the Bible labels him a fool. And he foolishly failed to acknowledge God and submit to him as Lord. And this is what David says next, is that all of mankind naturally fits this definition. We're all fools without the grace of Christ working in our hearts. This isn't just atheists and obscure Old Testament characters. All of us, without the supernatural grace of God, could, never, or could, always, could always be described as the fool. And so David writes in verse 2, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. So in verse 2, David is, or sorry, God is depicted as up in heaven, looking down on mankind, searching for someone who has true wisdom and seeks after God. Now, when we think of God looking down from heaven, it's, it's not as though he's looking for something he cannot see. Right? We know of God's omnipresence and his omniscience. We know that God is both everywhere and knows everything. Nothing can be hidden from God. So when, we, when David writes that he looks down from heaven, David is using human terms to describe what God seems to be doing. So in these verses, God is over, overviewing the totality of his creation, looking for someone who understands and seeks after God. And of course, as he looks down and surveys humanity, he sees nothing but depravity. It says in verse 3, they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So God sees that all of mankind has fallen away. The totality of their being has been corrupted by sin. That phrase, they have all fallen away, is speaking of the inherent lack of righteousness in mankind. This is a legal term, speaking of our right standing before God. If we said that someone had perfect righteousness, we'd, we'd mean that this person is sinless and they're able to stand before God who's perfectly holy. And we see throughout the Bible that this perfect righteousness is only ever gained by perfect obedience to God's law. Think of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But of course, none of us have perfectly obeyed God's law. Just a simple reading of the Ten Commandments will reveal how, fall, how far short we've fallen from God's standard of perfection. But if you take it even a step further and look at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Jesus takes many of the Ten Commandments and says it's not just about perfect outward obedience. It's measured by our attitudes of our hearts as well. Meaning we can sin in our hearts without ever moving a muscle. 
And so as God looks down from heaven, his diagnosis is that we've all fallen away. Then God describes humanity as corrupt. And the the Hebrew word for corrupt is the same word you would use to describe soured milk. I don't know if you've ever opened up a, a jug of milk from the fridge and discovered it to be soured. That, that smell it will stick with you for weeks. But it's not as though you can just you know, pour a little of the milk down the drain and then the rest can go on top of your cereal and be enjoyed. right? If the jug is soured, it is soured throughout. So it is with the condition that God finds man in. Utterly corrupt, spoiled, and soured throughout to the point where not a single person does good, not even one. Now, while verses 2 and 3 are written from God's perspective in heaven, verse 4 is written from David's perspective here on earth. He writes, Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? So David here is mourning the actions of those who are rebelling against God. And this this form of rebellion has taken the form of, of, of warfare against God's chosen people. So he's not exempting himself from radical depravity, right? He's just mourning the the way that that depravity is being uh, used to hurt God's people. Now, David says that these attackers who work evil have no knowledge, meaning they have no knowledge of God. They are the fool of verse 1. They deny the very existence of God, and so their lack of knowledge about God has led them to do this abominable iniquity of attacking God's people. In fact, this lifestyle of rebellion is so natural for the evildoers, it's as comfortable to them as eating a slice of bread. They've become comfortable in their sin. Friends, may it never be the case of us that we become comfortable with our sin. Don't become comfortable with sin. Don't play with it. Don't let it hang around when no one's looking. Don't become comfortable with your sin. Now, while these attackers of God's people seem comfortable in in their mode of attack, their comfort won't last for long, and it certainly doesn't last into eternity. Look at the first part of verse 5. There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. Now, you'll recall that Psalm 53 and Psalm 14 are nearly identical except for this verse. If you look at this verse in Psalm 14, it's meant to serve as a comfort to God's people when they're attacked by enemies. In Psalm 14, the next part of the phrase says, There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. So in that version of the psalm, the attackers of God's people are in great terror because they're opposing God. David proclaims that God's people will certainly overcome their enemies. God's people will win because God is with them. And so that's why the evildoers are in great terror. They're nervous knowing that they stand against the people of God. But in our psalm, in Psalm 53, the focus changes. Now what's in view is is the judgment that's coming for those who are living in rebellion against God. Let me read verse 5 once more. For there they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. So the picture we get in this verse is that of judgment that is coming for the enemies of God's people. Just one verse ago, they seemed so comfortable in their sin. 
so comfortable to be attacking God's people. But here the enemies suddenly find themselves in great peril because they know of the judgment that's coming for them, of God's rejection of them. Pastor Richard Phillips, who's the pastor of Second Prez in Greensville, comments this, Panic overtook Israel's enemies when there was no adequate human cause for it. But if that has been so when there was no cause, how much greater the fear will be when sinners are confronted by the enormity of their transgression before the presence of a thrice holy God. These enemies of God's people are described as having great terror in times of peace. They, they fear an earthly attack, but the reality is an earthly attack is the least of their worries, for a greater judgment is coming. When the judgment day comes, as the end of the verse says, they will be put to shame and find that God has utterly rejected them. They've been found to be radically depraved, radically opposed to God. Now, it might be helpful here to pause for a minute and think about this doctrine of total depravity. So while this isn't a proof text, or while this isn't a theological textbook, this is one of the main proof texts for this doctrine. And so I think it's helpful to think a little bit more about total depravity, or as some like to call it, radical depravity. Um, Dr. James Anderson, who's a professor at RTS Charlotte, gives this helpful definition of radical depravity. He says, since the fall... Humans are enslaved to sin and by nature bent toward evil in every part. We're enslaved to sin and bent toward evil in every part. This is where I think the phrase radical depravity is sometimes helpful. When we think of total depravity, the, the, the response to that is often, well, I, I don't do evil every moment of every day. Certainly non-Christians do some helpful things for humanity. Certainly there are many great non-Christian doctors who've invented medicines that are great for humanity. They do some good things. And so the, the, the phrase radical depravity I find more helpful because you consider just how radical our sin is. That it's radically infected every area of our life. Not that the only thing we ever do is, is sin against God and evil constantly, but that sin has affected everything, that all of our, even our best efforts have been tainted with sin. And that's been the case ever since the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. Whenever Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, ever since that point, all mankind is naturally bent towards evil and sin in every part. And this is the case, of course, because Adam as the first human in all of creation stood as our representative as adam fell in the garden the rest of mankind fell with him now the most helpful illustration i've heard for this is that of a light switch uh, my oldest son levi is four years old and he's quite tall for his age he's had his, his pediatrician appointment on friday and they said he's at the 98th percentile of height for four-year-olds um, now that gives us the distinct pleasure of him realizing that he can reach every light switch in the house. And he loves nothing more than to run around turning off the lights and turning on those lights and turning on ceiling fans. And, and we recently discovered he can even open the garage door by himself. That's added a new level of terror in the official household. Uh, but it's not as though Levi has his own contract with Centerpoint Power. Right, Levi, as a four-year-old, did not sign a, 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 a contract with the power company so that when he turns on the light, it turns on for him. Right, I'm the official representative of our family to the power company. 
I'm the one who signed that contract. And so Levi, being a member of my household, simply benefits from the contract that I signed. Which also means if I ever fail to pay my power bill, then Levi will feel the effects of my mistakes. In the same way, Adam in the garden was the the representative of all humanity before God. When he fell in the garden, we all felt the effects of his sin. We're all born with original sin. We inherit it. And that's true of every human descending from Adam. Every single human descending from Adam is born as a sinner. And that's true of every last one of us. And that's the exact point that verse five, the first five verses of Psalm 53 are pointing us to. This reality that we are all radically depraved. We've all inherited sin from Adam, and then we've added our own sins on top of that. Every one of us is born guilty, and we've added our own guiltiness through our own sins in thought, in word, and deed. It's commonly said that we're not called sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's at our core. It affects every area of our life without exception. Now remember for a moment that Psalm 53 is quoted later in the Bible in Romans 3. And then a few verses after Paul quotes our psalm, he says this in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of God. And because of our sin, we can never measure up to God's standard of perfect righteousness. So while God is holy and sinless, we are radically depraved and full of sin. This is the diagnosis that Psalm 53 places on all of us. In some ways, this should cause us to feel rather helpless. Right? When, we, when we come to terms with the sinfulness of our sin, we ought to find ourselves wondering, what are we to do with this sin problem? If we really are totally depraved, if our sin has effect, infected every single effort we try, then what are we supposed to do? And this, my friends, is the exact reason why we need a Savior. In spite of our best efforts, our, our supposedly good works could never measure up to God's requirement of perfection. Even our best efforts have been tainted with sin, and this is why we need a Savior to stand in our place. This is why we need someone who is perfect, who is sinless, who, is, who has perfect righteousness. This is why we need someone who, as the Shorter Catechism puts it, was not descended from Adam by, by ordinary generation. And this is what David is praying for in verse 6 of our passage. Brings us to our second and final heading, radical grace. So after considering just how radically depraved we are, David cries out for salvation. He knows there's nothing good in himself that could ever bring salvation. And so he cries out in verse 6, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. He recognizes his own sinfulness, his own need for a Savior, and cries out for help. For God to send salvation from Zion. Now this salvation, David would know this, was actually promised back in the garden. Right? Just after the fall of Adam and Eve, right after they'd sinned against God, God speaks this word of judgment against the serpent. It says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. 
He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we get this promise that one day the son of the woman, meaning Christ, will crush the head of the serpent. Now this is a turn of phrase that literally means death. If you crush someone's head, if you bruise someone's head, it means they're going to die. So if the offspring of Eve is going to bruise the head of the serpent, it means that one day Jesus will fully and finally kill Satan. But then it says, you shall bruise his heel. This is referring to an injury that doesn't leave a person dead. If you've ever bruised your your heel before, or maybe torn your Achilles heel, uh, it hurts. But you're going to be okay. You, You come back from that injury. We see here the promise that Jesus Christ will die a real death on the cross and that he'll rise again. He didn't stay dead. He rose again, gaining salvation for all people. Now, this promise from Genesis 3.15 is carried on throughout Scripture, where where God's people have been reminded again and again and again again that God will provide a way to deal with their sins. Think about the Old Testament sacrificial system. This looked like the people sacrificing animals on behalf of their sins. But the sacrifice of the animals was never enough to cover the sins of the people. They needed a a greater substitute. Which is why David prays for salvation to come from Zion. From this place where the temple in Jerusalem would have been, where these sacrifices would have taken taken place over and over and over again, David knows that those sacrifices were never enough. They needed full salvation that can only come from God. Richard Phillips again comments that the temple on Mount Zion, with its sacrifices for sin, taught God's people to look forward. To look forward for a a Savior whose substitutionary death would cleanse from all sin. Now earlier I read from Romans uh, 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But I'll confess, I, I actually stopped reading halfway through that sentence. There's more to that story. Let me read what Paul says from there. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Yes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But for those who've been united to Christ by faith, We have been justified by radical grace. In the courtroom of heaven, we have been declared justified. Our sins have been wiped clean. We are made right with God. Not because of any works on our own part, but as a gift and through the work of Christ on the cross, given to us by grace. Our salvation is a gift from God who who sent his son Jesus to be our propitiation, to be our substitute, to stand in our place. Meaning that the wrath of God that we all deserved because of our sins has been placed upon Christ. He bore it in our place. He suffered the death that you and I deserved because of our sin. And he's given to us his righteousness that he earned through perfect obedience to the law. Whereas we are all radically depraved, Jesus Christ is perfect and holy, never once sinning. Dear Christian, he died for you. 
Consider the last phrase there in Romans 3, verse 25. To be received by faith. You all know this, but let me remind you again that you you cannot earn this salvation. You cannot do enough good works to secure it for yourself. Salvation must be received by faith alone. And so I urge you to receive Christ by faith today. There's no other name by which you can be saved. Don't depend on your own best efforts. They've all been tainted by sin. Rest on Christ. Turn to him by faith and cling to him for salvation this day. Let me read David's prayer once more from verse 6. He cries out, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Rejoice and be glad. This is the application of Psalm 53. This is where the rubber meets the road of this psalm in our lives today in 2022. We are to rejoice and be glad in the salvation that's come. We are to rejoice and be glad in the fact that this verse, verse 6, that prayer has been answered in the course of redemptive history. That Christ really has come. He really has lived a perfect life for us. He really has died in our place. And that for those who are united to Christ by faith, we really have true and full salvation and right standing before God. We are to rejoice and be glad. Now, David says, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. And and you might say, my name's not Jacob, and I'm not a citizen of the country of Israel. And, and of course, that's, that's true, but these phrases are meant to include all of true Israel. That is, all the elect, all of God's people for whom he has died. This is another way of saying the people of God rejoice and be glad. Let us rejoice. Let us be glad that salvation belongs to the Lord. That by his radical grace, he has given us his son as the propitiation for our sins. To put it simply, whenever we come to texts like this, whenever we consider the doctrine of total depravity, our response is not to mope around in self-pity. Our response is not to just think about how, how terrible we are. Rather, we are to rejoice and be glad in our Savior. Rejoice and be glad that salvation has come for sinners like us. Rejoice and be glad that while God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so while, yes, it's still true what Psalm 53 says about radical depravity, I urge you this Lord's Day, I urge you to dwell on the radical grace that's given to you in Christ. For even while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. He died in your place. So let us rejoice and be glad together, for salvation has come. The prayer of this psalm has been answered. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we confess once more that we we have sinned against you and done what is evil in your sight. We have turned aside from you and have failed to understand and submit to your will. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and yet we praise you for the justification that is ours in Christ Jesus. We rejoice in the redemption purchased for us by Christ's atoning death on the cross. 
And we thank you, Lord, that you sent your son to die for us. You put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. So, Lord, we rejoice. We are glad in the salvation purchased by Christ. Would you remind us of the beauty of the gospel this day? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.